Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Wildlife for You podcast. I'm Stephanie Payne, your host, and I am joined by my best friend and the Tony Romo of Wildlife Podcasting, Joe Redajek. It is about time that you stop calling me Troy Aikman. <laughs> uh, as long as we're clear that I'm still Joe Buck. You know, he's he's my favorite football announcer, and I do not want to be Jim Nance or whoever, but I am curious. What is your beef with Troy Aikman? You should know this. I, I am a diehard Buffalo Bills fan. And if you recall this like four year time span in the early 1990s where the Bills were like the most dominant team ever to exist in the NFL, but we couldn't win the big one. <laughs> Two of those losses came to uh, a Dallas Cowboy team that was led by that claymation character, Troy Aikman. So that's my beef. Other, otherwise, he's OK, I guess. Alrighty then. You need to learn to uh, to let sleeping dogs. Yeah, forgive and forget. Water under the bridge. Anyway, so as a reminder to our listeners, a few episodes ago, the subject of a species and their impact on the environment came up, and I asked Daryl what one species, excluding invasive species, exploits and alters the habitat. Yeah, it it was awesome. So, so Steph loved me this easy pitch just tossed it up in the air and you know what you you didn't even lob it to me stuff you you like gently placed this question on one of those t-ball tees so it wasn't even moving for me (laughs) and the way you set it up for me that's how easy it was for me to hit that question out of the park and alas (laughs) i whiffed (laughs) i whiffed big time because i responded coyotes <laughs> and, and then i came running to the defense of my response of coyotes and uh, yeah I, I i totally whiffed so i don't think you're ever gonna let me live that down <laughs> no probably not but the, anyway the, the answer that i and likely every single one of our listeners was looking for was good old homo sapiens you know and that got us thinking that maybe we should do an episode or two on the impact that humans have had on the landscape I mean, it's easy right now in this day and age to look almost everywhere and see the effects of humans, but we thought we'd back it up a bit and talk about kind of like when and how all of that started. Yeah. And one thing I want to throw in here is there's, there's this often popular opinion that like early humans lived more in balance with nature and didn't literally exploit the world. And I I guarantee there's probably even folks out there that say, like as little as three or 400 years ago, humans weren't having that much of an impact in North America. So we thought we'd do a lot, and I mean a lot of research, to see if we could paint a picture for you guys that shows this progression of all of these human impacts. True, true, and no lie on the amount of homework. Now. That being said, if it's okay with you, Dee, the very first thing that I wanted to tackle is explaining the difference between like ages and eras and periods and epochs, because in conversations and in my reading and stuff, we often, you hear things like ice ages or the age of dinosaurs or the stone age, middle age, dark age, iron age, you know, it gets so very confusing because you got ice age, age of dinosaurs and, you know, middle ages, it gets very, very confusing, but you know, and then just to com- like compound that, we hear terms like, oh, it's the, you know, the Anthropocene. Or the, it was during the Pleistocene or, hey, it's Jurassic Park, you know, Triassic, even Mesozoic. I mean, you hear all those words and it gets very, very confusing. Okay. 
But before we confuse everyone and get too far of ourselves here, I'm going to clear the air on one of the words you just said, which you said epoch. And that that word is spelled E-P-O-C-H-S. And we, we were kind of having a little debate before we were getting started here. Is it pronounced epochs or epics? All right. And I'm going to give everybody the answer that we actually kind of figured out when we were delving into that, because it's epics. we have two pronunciations. <laughs> no, we have we have two pronunciations. The, the pronunciation of, of epoch comes from the British pronunciation. And we all know that Anglo-Saxons as a general rule come from that part of the world. Um, so quite a bit of us uh, epochs. Now, in American, it's pronounced epics. And the reason that I could find, and I, I'm going to tell you all right now, I did not research this exhaustively, but the research that I found said that Americans actually started calling it epics, even though that's not how it's spelled. It's not spelled like an E-P-I-C, like a, an epic, was because it's epic, you know, is obviously slang for something that's this huge, you know, kind of giant scale story. So literally, I personally believe that Americans are cheating when they say that, and we should call it epochs. And I have always called it epochs. So um, you, okay. I'm going to call it an epoch. Okay, you continue to do that, and I will call it an epic because I'm one of Great. those. Great, so we'll confuse everybody. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those lazy Americans. So anyway, t- tell me, what are we going to talk about first in this episode, ages or epochs? Oh, I'm so proud of you. But um, can we go with both? I mean, mostly I think we're going to end up talking in terms that are more like an age, but an epoch still fits into the puzzle. All right. Fair enough. Now start throwing down some definitions for us. Okay. This is, this is not going to be easy listeners. Um, I am going to do my very, very best to paint a mental picture in your time, uh, in your mind, excuse me, of timeframes. So I will say right now, all of this is, is in terms that we call geologic time. And geologic time means deep time because of the amount of time that it actually covers. So I, I wanna be very, very clear that these are what we call geologic timescales, um, meaning just a, a stupid number of years. I'll just put it that way. So when you're talking about geologic time, the very, very longest one, and a lot of these, you know, we use a lot of these terms in our day-to-day when we're talking about exhaustive tasks, but an eon is actually the longest period of geologic time. Um, and then, and, and I mean, and that's huge. It is a, a staggering, humans can't really easily comprehend the amount of time that an eon covers which is why we say those really terrible tasks take an eon. Anyway, the next down on that scale is what we call an era. Um, and there's, there's different eras, but the ones that are air quotes the most recent are the Paleozoic, Mesozoic, and Cenozoic. Um, and eras also cover these really huge, huge scales of time. To put that further in context, the next lower scale that we have in geologic time is called a period. Now, when you think of a period, you've all heard of these because words like Jurassic, Triassic, Cretaceous, um, and then we've got like tertiary and quaternary, which ironically are not as well known because they're not big in pop culture uh, movies, but those are what we call periods. So for example, when they talk about in Jurassic Park, when they're saying these are Jurassic animals, they're talking about a huge period of time that rolls into a bigger era 
that rolls into an even bigger eon. Now, when we go back in our, our geologic timescales, the further back you go, the less recent the record is. So let me stop there for a second. And when I say the record, what I am talking about are, um, and it's the Earth's physical records. So there's, there's these stratified layers or, or bands that you can, you know, that they're, they're physically present. A lot of times you can actually see them. Like when you look at the slice in the side of a cliff and you see different literal bands that kind of span across there, those bands are the things that we're talking about when we talk about these, these bands that help us define geologic time. But these are physically present because they're chemically and or biologically distinct. Um, so, so there's something chemologically, chemo, I can talk, chemically, chemically and biologically, yeah, chemically and biologically distinct that separates it from the bands on either side of it. And that makes it a, a pretty easy way to, to measure that. And again, those are covering still huge amounts of time. So the further back you go in the Earth's record, like back in the Jurassic, Triassic, Cretaceous periods, it's kind of, you know, that's, that's really old stuff. And just like anytime you're researching anything, the older the data, the harder it is to nail down specifics in it. So when you get to more recent periods, like the tertiary period and the quaternary period, we have a, a bit more evidence that's more recent. So it's easier for us to analyze and then quantify. So when we're looking at those bands, what those bands actually can tell us, for example, is they may define and they almost always define kind of, you know, what the, what the earth was like then. It's a, a full planet period that talks about like the environment and the climate for that time. And, and just to be clear, folks, when, when we're talking about climate, we don't, we're not meaning localized weather. A lot of people talk about the climate and like, oh, it's 72 degrees out. That's not it. The climate is more global. It's like a much larger area, much longer scale. So it's it's kind of like the conditions of the earth on a large, massive scale. Yes, the, exactly. So conditions of the earth um, and the the temperatures and the you know amounts of precipitation globally and all of those things over not only a big scale as far as the area, but a big scale also as far as time. So anyway, um, so when we're looking at those those older periods, like let's just use because it's so easy for everybody to know the term. When we talk about the Jurassic period, it was again, it was a super long time ago. So when we break that down into epochs, we essentially can just break it down into big ballparks. We have the early Jurassic period, um, which is the epoch is the early. So it's the early epoch of the Jurassic period. And then we've got a middle epoch of the Jurassic period and then a late epoch of the Jurassic period. Now, when we get to those more recent periods like the tertiary and the quaternary, the epochs have new and unique names. It's no longer just early, middle and late. Then we start seeing these words like that some of you may have heard like Paleocene or Miocene, Pliocene, Pleistocene, and, and that's not hitting all of them, but that's just some examples. And then we can actually take that epoch and we can break it down into even further it's kind of, we call it a stage or an age. So for example, in the Pleistocene, we had an early Pleistocene and a late Pleistocene. There was no middle ground. But when we look back at like the Eocene, we did actually have an early, middle, and late. So that means that there's actual, 
you know, geologic, physical, and by, you know, the, the biological and chemical indicators and the earth's physical record that we could use to show those, those distinct periods of time. So again, all of these are very, very long spans of time, even when we're talking about those ages um, that are parts of that can roll up into the epochs. Those are still very, very long periods of time. So again, like the Pleistocene and, and Holocene epochs roll into a quaternary period, as opposed to, for example, again, like early, middle and late epochs of the Jurassic period, because that record is, is newer and fresher. You did great to start. <laughs> and, and it's so good to understand. And man, you are just so much more intelligent than I am because I'm sitting here saying, how did, how do you know all this stuff? And so you, you just blew me away with all that stuff. But the thing I love is how you stressed how long these periods are. And, and for the, the listeners out there like me that are, are like really simple-minded because I'm simple-minded, you have to understand the, these long periods of time. If you think about, oh, what was life like a hundred years ago or 200 years ago? And you're like, oh my gosh, how crazy, how crazy that is 200 years ago. Think about what life or the earth was like, like a thousand years ago or 10,000 or a hundred thousand years ago. When, when we're talking like a million years ago, it's so, so long ago, it's almost unimaginable. So anyway, Steph, let, let me see if I was picking up everything that you were laying down because you, you're too brilliant for me sometimes. So multiple ages or, or stages roll into like multiple epochs or epochs and those roll into periods and then multiple periods roll up into an era so it's it's kind of like just levels within levels yes okay yes and, and i'm gonna say again not not just yes but absolutely when you were kind of mentioning a second ago that it's just really unimaginable that 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 just still doesn't even feel big enough, you know, like unimaginable that it's absolutely incomprehensible for me to understand and really, really put my mind around what a million years would be, for example, because that's just, it's too much. It's too big. It's like my mind trying to, to comprehend infinite, you know? Great, great definition on, on these time periods or, or the span of time that we're talking about. So Let's let's get back to this this human discussion, this Homo sapiens. And correct me if I'm wrong, but hominins first appeared around like six million years ago in that Miocene epoch or epoch, which ultimately ended about like five point three million years ago. Um, that is correct. Yes, and as that I should say, as as best we can tell with the evidence that we have, yes. But do you know, I really. Uh, what here's a pop quiz for you what's the difference between a hominin and a hominid easy uh, one ends in a d and the other one ends in an n <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding a hominin is two or more words that have like the same spelling or pronunciation but okay, <laughs> okay i'm sorry you're 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 confusing the crap out of everybody i'm sure at this point but okay. i found that really funny <laughs> apparently you get, you get a you let out a good one there but okay i i'm sorry folks i didn't mean to distract but the the word hominin that i mentioned before and stephanie wanted me to clarify it's actually a very good question because it really can be confusing 
So hominins, and that's H-O-M-I-N-I-N. Uh, what those are, they're a subfamily of the family hominae. And hominae includes all those offshoots of what we consider those first ancestral humans. But that family also includes gorillas and chimps, but not orangutans. <laughs> now, hominids with a D, see how confusing this is, that's the larger family. And that's where we see all those other great apes come in. So the, those orangutans then get picked up. So the hominid is that broad family. Hominins is the subfamily, which is more or less the great apes and the human peoples. I Yes, very good definition. Thanks, I know. <laughs> now, <laughs> now back to the eras and periods and epics. The, the humans, <laughs> the human evolutionary path, it, it literally takes us through the Pliocene, the Pleistocene, and finally into the Holocene, which is only those last three epochs or epochs. I'm so, we're so confused. I remember, I'll just call I them, know. I'll, I'll call them epochs from, from now on, just to make you happy. Thank you. It does so, make me happy. So right now we're in the Anthropocene epic, right? <laughs> we are. In the, I am so sorry, folks. You know, if this wasn't his podcast, I'd fire him for y'all right now. <laughs> I would leave. <laughs> so, yes, um, you know, and I, I do want to stress that this is not a talk on evolution by any way, straight, you know, or shape or form. Um, and I, I am really, really glad that you asked me that question. So, yes, we are in the Anthropocene epoch, and I want to bring that definition of epoch up again. It is a period of geologic time where we can physically identify strata in the Earth's record based on biological or chemical composition, and it's there permanently. So you said twice already. <laughs> I know, I know, but it, it really... It's, that's a big deal. That is a huge, huge deal because that means that that in the Anthropocene, we have officially affected the planetary's geologic record enough to literally name an epoch on our effects. I mean, the world, okay, the, the word Anthropocene itself means, Daryl? That people, like with a capital P, hence the prefix anthro, um, that means people have been the dominant factor influencing the climate and the environment. Ding, 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 ding. I mean, so now our planet has been through lots, lots of destruction and creation and climate change, you know, long before humans were ever on the scene. Oh, good play on the word since the, the epochs we're talking about all end in scene. Yeah, thanks. Let me... I apologize. You're, for you're beeping in the background. I, yeah, it's my my computer over there is beeping. So let me mute that. I apologize. Okay, it is. I had this fired up and muted, but it is fired up and muted. So yes, they they do all end in scene, and I actually kind of meant that. So thank you. Um, but the geologic record is now showing that for the first time ever in a very long and turbulent history of our planet, a species, not you know. All these natural species, a species, it, yeah, it, a it, species is what is affecting that geologic record that's recordable, visible, irreversible, 
you know, and going to ever permanently, like I said, permanently be present as opposed to those things that have caused all of the other ones, like those complex natural things that often take so much time to happen. Instead, humans are like flipping a switch. Yeah, I mean, it seems kind of dramatic. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but if you think about it in the context of a geologic time span, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, no, I, I totally see your point. So why don't we start talking about how all of that started? How did that that switch? How, how were we able to get all of that started? How what started? The epoch? No doofus. The the human spurred planet change. And when, when you were mentioning that before, I must say that like everything else prior to this human impact was natural impact. Whether or not it was over giant periods of time where climate has changed, or maybe maybe a massive meteor strike, <laughs> something monumental changed it. But I, I loved how you stressed a species is now changing it. So how did humans turn into that egotistical, like dominant species that we are? Oh, so you want to start about that? Yeah, we could talk about that. Well, you already know what I think is the biggest discovery or invention that pretty much changed how humans live, which ultimately resulted in the impact of the planet. So you know what it is. Do you, you want to start there? Mm, maybe not. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree, but like everything else, there are required elements that kind of lead up to that. So I don't want to just jump in to the middle of it. I'd rather start, you know, at the beginning, so, but, but riddle me this, um, do we need to start by analyzing like the genome and talking about where it all started to, you know, maybe throw in the relationship with some other hominin species that we all considered like almost hobo sapiens and then, like, lead up to the argument about when the Anthropocene started? You just love to complicate things, don't you? <laughs> um, all right. Yes, let's do that, because this is your dog and pony show. Okay. Um, well, again, I know that this is going into some potentially touchy subjects. So I'll say that even if you are a creationist and you do not believe in evolution at all, that is fine. That is absolutely okay. This conversation does not hinge on evolution, okay? But let's start by looking at the human genome. So Daryl, quickly, do you want to explain what a genome is? <laughs> Me? <laughs> Seriously, I, I'm like the guy that accidentally killed my entire fruit fly collection in genetics class. Um, <laughs> I will, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Okay, a genome is more or less a term, it, it kind of means like all the genetic information of an organism. And that includes things like the DNA, the mDNA, which is mitochondrial DNA, um, the chloroplast uh, DNA, coding, non-coding, all, all those bits alike. So to put it simply, a genome is all that information that's needed to build that organism and all the unique coding that makes up that organism. So species as we know them they share that same bulk the, the they pretty much share the bulk of that same dna so since we are all humans like me and steph and all of you listeners out there uh, most of our listeners out there we we share 
the same DNA. So the majority of our DNA is identical because we are all humans. Flawless. I will <laughs> say flawless. <laughs> oh, thank heavens for cheat sheets because you, you told me I'd have to explain genome. So I was like, crap, I got to look this up. <laughs> okay, but can I ask you a, a quick question first? Where do we draw the line? It, you and I obviously don't have the exact same DNA or else like we'd be twins and that would sure as heck be scary for you. <laughs> so what, what, what makes something a different species as opposed to just a different individual? So, well, like you were just saying, whenever you were talking about all of the things that make up that, that DNA, the bulk, like you said, it's not that our DNA is identical because we're human. It's that the bulk of that DNA is identical and a vast array of that genome is what they call non-coding. You said a second ago that we have coding and you know non-coding, all of those bits alike, I believe is how you eloquently stated that. So there's lots of bits in our DNA that are actually non-coding. They've just been added onto throughout the, the, the span of time. But if you look at a genome from a human, the vast majority of the, the, the DNA between you and I is going to be absolutely identical because at the end of the day, we are both humans. There are just, gosh, I'm going really into this and I, I didn't mean to do this. That, There's different alleles and, and, and loci and things like that that then cause traits to be exhibited that then might affect variation in our appearance. But at the end of the day, we're both still two humans with two eyes, one nose, one mouth, two arms, two legs, you know, hair on our head, not, you know, that. Can, can I ask you something real quick, Epoch lady? Where did yes. you, where'd you go to school? You must've went to school in Britain because I've always heard it as alleles and loci. That's because you went to school in New York. In America, <laughs> in America. No. Okay. So that let's, okay. So to be completely honest with you, a vast, I did learn quite a bit of stuff on genetics and the genomes and things, but I am a true nerd. I read about things for fun like this. So um, a lot of times, for example, with epochs, I was reading about epochs long before I ever went to college. I was reading about epochs when I was still in sixth grade. And when one is reading words, one pronunciate, you know, we yeah. use phonetic pronunciation. E-P-O-C-H is epoch. See, that's, that's why you are so much smarter than I. And I give you a ton of credit because you, I, I will vouch for you as much as you read, you blow me away in that regard. So. Well, just chuck the TV out the window. The Sabres game is and <laughs> <laughs> never mind. All right. Anyway, so you asked me that question. Why? Why did you need another question? What question? You were just asking me? about the difference. Well, I, I guess oh, you were just trying to ask why me and you aren't two Daryls. Yeah. Well, because that question pops in my mind. So I was wondering if anyone else out there, because if you're saying we, we have the same DNA, uh, there there's like the same DNA between humans, but we can't have the exact same DNA or else we'd be identical. So that's why I was wondering what, what there, there's a dividing line and you, you hit the nail on the head. You said the bulk of it for humans from one human to another, the bulk of it is the same, but like mm -hmm. between species, you don't have the bulk of it. Well, sometimes mm -hmm. you do. So. Yeah. But I mean, we could, if you really wanted to one day, we could bust into like, you know, RNA and no, you know, no, the mitochondrial <laughs> DNA and all no. that good stuff. No. 
Anyhow, so when when we unraveled the human genome, we start seeing like the again the building blocks of all humans, of all of us, including those humans that are long dead. They had the same bulk DNA and all those yet to be conceived because that's just the beauty of, of DNA. So we can use this genome on ancient human relics because, you know, you can actually extract DNA from ancient bones and then you can compare it to modern day human DNA. Um, and we can do that same thing with say Neanderthal DNA. Um, you know, if you find a finger bone in, in a cave somewhere, it's like, okay, well that that's, ambiguous. I don't know what it belongs to. So the only way you can really identify it is by looking at the DNA in that. And then they can actually come back and say, okay, that ancient bone that you've got, that one's actually carrying Neanderthal DNA versus Homo sapien DNA. And that helps us determine using those examples, you know, what remains are human and what remains are Neanderthal. And just so you know, Neanderthals were very close, like genetically to humans, uh, humans of that time and humans of today. And behaviorally, we think there's like a lot of similarities between humans and Neanderthals. So for example, both species were, were very intelligent and they altered their landscapes for increased survival. But the, the thing here is Neanderthals were, they were more adapted to colder climates, whereas humans used artificial means to, to adapt to those colder climates. So as the ice sheets decreased and temperatures increased. Remember that a, a tiny global temperature shift has huge cascading effects. And the, the Neanderthals at the time, they, they couldn't really adapt quickly enough. So they went extinct likely due to natural selection. They just couldn't survive in that environment. So honestly, like evidence of interbreeding with humans, modern day humans and Neanderthals, it, doesn't help things much because it just adds more complication so <laughs> all right yeah and I, I need to kind of back up real quick because you did a, a good job there but you were talking about when the ice sheets so going back to our our earlier discussion where i droned on for way too long probably about epochs um you know epoch rolls into a period period rolls into an era so as daryl said however long ago um humans first appeared in the records during the Miocene epoch, which ended about 5.3 million years ago. And they, they showed up, you know, like, like Daryl said, around 6 million years ago. So it was pretty, pretty close to the end of the Miocene um, is the earliest evidence that we can find of humans. Now, when Daryl said the ice sheets started to recede, the epoch that comes after the Miocene is the Pliocene followed by the Pleistocene. So the Pleistocene is is that great ice age that people always talk about. There's been plenty of them in the earth's record where the, you know, the earth's been covered in, in ice. But when we all think about the ice age, you know, with saber toothed tigers and mastodons and, you know, the American camel and the giant sloth and those kinds of creatures, those all come from the, what we all in, in normal day-to-day -day speak call the last ice age, which is the Pleistocene epoch. So when the Pleistocene ice sheets started to recede to introduce then the, the, the Holocene, that's the, the ice sheets that the, the Neanderthals could not necessarily um, adapt quickly enough to that temperature change. And like Daryl said, due to natural selection, that's why they likely um, vanished out. from our landscape. Yeah. So the interesting thing is 
both humans and Neanderthals are very interesting because like you just said, humans adapted their habitat to them instead of adapting biologically, which is a huge, huge deal. Um, and that right there, that little bit, that's where it all started. Yeah, and, and that's where the Anthropocene started. No, right. actually, no, no, no. Just the expansion of humans. Um, the thing that you mentioned, you know, was adapting their habitat to them rather than them adapting to the habitat. That's that's key here. So I, I know you're, I hope you're sitting down. Let me pitch you another softball. Oh, geez. Can, can you make it at least a basketball? <laughs> you, you just... I will pitch you a big, big beach ball real slow. You're just trying to set me up for failure here. No, honestly, you you actually, this is easy because you can't get this one wrong. <laughs> you don't know me very well. <laughs> <laughs> Go, shoot. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. So what do you think most of our listeners would say? Tools versus fire were the first invention of humans. And I want you to just say what you think our listeners would say. That's why I said you can't get this wrong, Daryl. Okay. Well, I'm going to say they probably think that fire was first used by humans. I would think that most people would actually agree with you and think that the first thing that we did was make fire. <laughs> but evidence <laughs> actually shows that, yeah, I think I still think my dog thinks I'm coolest because I can make fire whenever I want. But evidence actually shows that tools likely came first. So now don't get me wrong. Um, you know, early humans likely exploited fire for various things if they came across fire and could could harness it for a little while. But the intentional creation and then the explicit use of fire, that actually, that whole process evolved itself. You know, first fire was used just to burn the ground for one reason or, or, or another. Like, you know, they might want to clear a space for, you know, preferred plants to grow. Maybe they figured out that, you know, certain, if there's a certain kind of succession, gosh, I'm getting into biological speak, successional habitat, maybe they didn't want all those briars. They wanted the the new buds of new things. So they, you know, use fire to actually clear a space for plants that fit that niche. Um, and then obviously they started to harness fire in more restricted confines for heating and then later for cooking. And then later than that, even for like the, uh, not probably too far along, but the alteration of tools. So those two things, the creation of fire um, for purpose, you know, purposeful use, and then the ability to create and use tools, those are absolutely critical for the ability for us to increase our population size, because that's what allowed us to adapt our habitat to us rather than adapting to the habitat and those things also then introduce the advent of. Dun, dun, dun. I know where you're going with this. Oh, th this ah. is that basketball. <laughs> I could hit this one because what what that led to is probably the most landscape altering practice ever on Earth, and that is the humans harnessing or or development of agriculture. And just so you know, I'm, I might throw in GMOs. I know that's a touchy subject. We'll talk about that as well. Ah, oh, D, those are two pretty heavy topics. What do you say we address each one separately? You know, even though I, I get it, I know that, that they're related. 
Um, but you know, we can then tell everyone how they go hand in hand. Okay. No, I'm, I'm seriously good with that. Cause we, we do got to touch on them, but let, let's first start with this concept of agriculture. And I think the best way for us to do that is let's start thinking about it in the most basic of biological principles, because we like biology here. So we, we can have a long debate on what the ultimate goal of life is. But one thing we know for almost all organisms out there, well, actually, let me say for all animals, is that in order to stay alive, you have to eat. Now, we've talked about different trophic levels on this podcast, was, as well as some of the webinars I put on with Wildlife for You. Um, but just to refresh everyone's memory, Stephanie, uh, do, do you want to describe what we're talking about with trophic levels? Hmm, I see what you're doing here. So yeah, uh, you're trying to put me on the spot. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can handle that pressure. Um, I, I got this one, D. So what Daryl means when he's talking about these trophic levels is that within an ecosystem, there's a food chain, a food web that shows what animals eat. You know, so like the lowest levels on this food web are going to be the plants. You know, they're also they're known as the producers since they produce their own food, you know, because they get sunlight and they, they, they do what plants do. Um, and I believe this is why Daryl actually corrected himself a minute ago to specify that, you know, animals have to search for and then eat food, you know, because plants, they don't have to do that. Um, anyway, so plants are the lowest level um, on that, the, the trophic levels of that. So they're the lowest level of that, that big food web. Above them, you have the herbivores. So the herbivores are the animals that eat the plants. That's another trophic level. And then above them, you have the carnivores, which typically eat the herbivores that again are eating the plants. So now we're up to a third trophic level. So that is a very, very basic definition of what trophic levels are. Keep in mind, it is never as simple as grass grow, deer eat, cougar eat deer. Um, you know, there's lots of interconnections between those levels. It is never straight lines. And that's why I called it a web. Anyway, why did you have me describe all of these trophic levels? Well, first off, you did a good job. But the Thanks. reason I had you do that is because when it comes to animals, they're all searching for food. They're, they're trying to find something to eat in order to stay alive. Now, the herbivores, they're obviously searching for plant life. They eat grass, leaves, whatever they eat. The carnivores that you mentioned, they're obviously searching for other animals to eat. Now, there are animals out there that are classified as omnivores, and they'll eat either plants or animals. But no matter what the animal is, it's trying to find food in order to stay alive. And this my friends, is where humans became the first animal to drastically change things. Now, because of humans' cognitive development, their increase in brain size, their, their ability to think, they figured out how to make their own food. So obviously they don't make their own food through photosynthesis like plants, but instead they learn to grow and cultivate plants, also known as farming, also known as agriculture. I should also mention that it's not just limited to plants. This, this could include raising 
animals as well. So they learn to harness and grow their own food. Okay. Now what makes that so amazing and what makes this so monumental is that, you know, humans, they became like the, the very first species where instead of, again, I can't, I know this is like probably the third or fourth time I've said that, but this is so absolutely critical. Humans were the first species that instead of the landscape shaping them biologically through natural selection, meaning your, your form and function has to get tweaked over time to fit the environment or you die out. Humans instead said, you know what, forget that. We're going to shape the landscape to fit our biological needs. So again, I know I've said that before, but I really can't stress that enough because that is huge. I, I just want to tell you, Stephanie, that, that is so brilliant the way you put it. I, I've never heard it put that way like throughout my whole um, educational career or professional career, but it, it, it makes so much sense. So let's, let's explain that just one more time so everyone understands. <laughs> okay. So throughout time, you know, when, and this is just what we, we call natural selection. When environmental conditions change, that natural selection, it favors those animals that can adapt to the changing environment. Let me break that down just a little bit. So if you have I'm going to put this really simplistically. If you have a bunch of, of fish, cause they breed super fast. So we can see the adaptations happen faster in these little fish. If these fish live in an area where bright colors make them stand out, then obviously those bright colored fish get picked off more quickly because they're easy to spot, which means that over time, those darker colored fish are the ones that are left there to breed eventually meaning that the whole species there will probably adapt to be a darker coloration because that is natural selection. So when, when you hear things like natural selection and evolution, that doesn't necessarily mean the, the context that a lot of people accept it to mean. It literally means that things that favor a certain type of individuals within a species, they are the ones that then more successfully continue to breed. So eventually the traits that those species carry with them are the dominant traits among that species. And that's literally how we get so much speciation because those bright fish that got picked off in one pool in another pool, there might be a bunch of bright rocks. So the dark fish are the ones that got picked off and the bright ones are in there. So then you've got maybe two subspecies of this, you know, the same parent species. Anyway, humans, again, we threw a ginormous wrench into that natural selection process. Instead of being altered by the landscape, we started again, altering the landscape instead, which allowed early humans to survive without having to change too much biologically. All right, so think about it. Early humans typically, they had to follow whatever food source was out there that they could find, much like animal species do today. So if you're a bear, you're, you're looking for berries in the I knew it. Oh I was my like, gosh. he's gonna say this because he's gonna have to pick an omnivore and he's immediately gonna put a bear. <laughs> I, I didn't even think of that. But if you are a bear, you you literally have to follow wherever that food source is. And that's what early humans did. And so, in other words, animals literally follow the resource. Now, once humans harness the ability to grow their own food through these agricultural practices they began changing the landscape to suit their needs. They did not follow the resource. They made the resource. 
Yeah. And think about the ramifications that that has, because as, as we know, well, I mean, so I've got a, a few different thoughts on here. So let me try to collect them. On one hand, I want to say, we all know, you know, wheat, barley, those things don't grow in the dead of winter. You know, they have a growing season. So not only did we learn to to propagate those plants and those species that we wanted to eat. In addition to that, we had to figure out how to make an abundance of them. So we had enough to put in storage to get us through the winter. But typically when a species, when they're following those food resources, that means that they're very, like the, the species itself is very limited in its population size. Um, think of it like carrying capacity. You know, populations, they're limited by how much food a landscape can actually produce. So, and, and then in addition to that, the constraints of following the food. So humans as a species through the development of the development of agriculture, they could produce more food than ever before and it released their population cap. Um, so not only did they not have to move along with the resources and carry everything that they owned with them, including, you know, little children on their backs and all of this stuff. They literally, which keep in mind that that's going to be a, a population limiting factor too, because you take a, a bunch of little children on a long, long country walk. Um, and that's going to increase the, the chance that you're going to lose some of the children <laughs> along the way and some of the adults. I'm sorry, but when I go on, I don't lose my kids. <laughs> Hey, well, where, you know what Billy? I mean. I don't mean where's Billy. I mean, you know, I know, I know, I know. Yes. And it puts them in a lot of danger because don't forget at the end of the day, we are one of the apex predators on the planet. If you take our brain into it, we are the apex predator of the planet. But that doesn't mean that we're the most physically dominant um, apex predator out there. So there were there were hazards to being a nomadic follow the resource species. So we took that out of the, the mix and then, you know, we don't have to follow the resources anymore. And we figured out how to make more resources so we could actually survive a winter and stay in one location for generations now, which ends up having, I don't even know a word big enough, but I'll just say drastic effects on the landscape because then suddenly our resources are being overutilized. And just so you know, I, I, I had no grasp of, that impact of humans from long, long ago. And, and I'm not talking ages ago, I'm talking like centuries ago. Um, when I was working on the Santa Fe National Forest, we had these, these ancient Pueblos where, where some of the, the, the Native Americans, they lived there for hundreds of years and they, they literally exhausted all the resources. And so after multiple generations, they, they changed that landscape so much they had to up and move to another mountain or, or a different place in the valley because they impacted the land so much. And, and this, was, this was like a thousand years ago or so. So they were, they were having major impact way back then. So anyway, uh, like, like I was just saying, this is just not a product of the last couple centuries. And humans, correct me if I'm wrong, we've been farming the land for, what is it, something like 10 or 12,000 years? Mm -hmm, something like that. So in other words, the, the scars of farming that have been left behind from altering that landscape, they've been evident for thousands of years. Thousands. And I will add that the magnitude and impact of farming practices from thousands of years ago they do, yes, admittedly pale in comparison to, to today, but 
you know, they, they still, they've been shaping our planet for a long, long time. So at this point, D, I want to ask, do we dare bring up the topic of GMOs? Uh, we're going on a we're going to make this a long episode, but yeah, because GMOs are, are so tied to this um, concept of agriculture. Um, anyway, I think it's a great time to bring that up because it, it fits right into this discussion. So I wanted, just so you know, and I, I told you about this last week, I wanted to get a feel for what the public thought about GMOs. So I actually asked that question on the Wildlife for You Facebook page in preparation for day, today's podcast. And so I wanna get a feel for people's thoughts on what GMOs were and whether or not they're good or bad. Okay, and what did the people on the Book of Faces let you know? Well, we, we received a couple of, res- well, a fair amount of responses actually. And the general thought was they're not as bad as what they're made out to be, which was actually not what I was expecting. <laughs> but <laughs> it just means we have really smart folks on Facebook that follow Wildlife for You. Now, only that follow Wildlife for You, most people on Facebook aren't as smart. Okay, carry on before you get yourself in a hole. <laughs> anyway, we did have a couple of responses on there that's probably more typical of what I would call the general public. Now, um, like I said, the, the wildlife few folks are more educated since they listen to me and you. <laughs> I I think you're, I, I am not trying to insult any of our followers or listeners, but you're probably dreaming a bit that we get the credit for that, but please yes. carry uh, on. Anyway, the, there were a few folks that responded to that question that I put out there about GMOs, and, and they mentioned how they generally consider GMOs as bad, but the one response that stood out was, it was actually a graphic that someone posted. And it, it showed how, what a GMO is, is like how a scientist inserts genes I- into animals to create kind of like this Franken plant. <laughs> you know, something that was like created by a mad scientist in a lab. Oh, you and your vernacular. But you know, it is, it's an interesting topic. But here's the thing, folks. GMOs or genetically modified organisms are not something new, nor are they always generated in a lab. In fact, um, GMOs have been around us as long as humans have been farming, which is what, you know, like we just said a second ago, that's like 10,000 years that we've been around GMOs. In the natural world, so you have to understand this, in the natural world, natural selection, again, it decides what plants or animals survive and produce then the next generation of offspring. And those those successive generations is what, again, really kind of drives this home. So when humans began farming, they got to decide which were the best or most prolific or most desirable features um, and, and elements of plants or animals that they wanted to have around. And then they began cultivating those selected individuals from within that species. So in other words, humans began choosing what genes to carry forward instead of leaving that choice up to mother nature. Now that's pretty much what a genetically modified organism is. Um, So something that it's, it's produced to suit human needs as opposed to its own natural needs, the, the organism's own natural needs. Did yeah. that make any sense, Daryl? Yeah, yeah, I, I followed along. So I think one of the biggest issues for people is not understanding 
what a GMO is. And there are many folks that think, like I said, it's something engineered in a lab through like some kind of gene splicing or some crazy mutations. Now, although that can be the case in some instances, that's, that's not the definition of a GMO. And so, you know, when I say in some instances, believe it or not, scientists can actually insert genes from a plant or an animal kind of to develop a specific trait. So, for example, a plant that's resistant to frost or insects or even, even pesticides. Um, but those are typically called genetically engineered plants. And those, those are definitely not what the majority of GMOs are. And that's where humans are having such a major impact on the earth. You know, it's mostly because of our increased needs for farming. I am just curious, total random thing. When you were just talking, I was wondering if, if it wasn't like against every ethical and moral thing, I wonder who's trying to figure out how to splice plant genes and with human genes so that we can just feed from sunlight. <laughs> anyway, oh. um, right. Anyway, so anyway, <laughs> No, we got it. We're running low on time. Anyway, remember, um, you know, we said that that people then were able to create their own resources. So when people were started to become able to create and then store their own resources, that really, again, it blew the top off of their carrying capacity. The population grew and then the need to farm more lands grew. And, you know, you can see right there that that is a huge terrible circle that you can get in. It's very cyclic because the population continues to grow, the need to agriculture, and it has more and more and more impact on the environment. Um, and keep in mind, folks, we're not just talking about farming plants. Humans are omnivores. You know, most humans eat plant and animal life. So we're, we're farming not just plants, but animals with livestock. And if, if you want to have an impact on the land, go and put a, you know, a few thousand head of cattle on it. Amen. And sadly with, with like all of our farming advances there, there, there's no end in sight to where we're going here. So um, anyway, real quick Steph, I know we're running really over here, but can I quiz you real quick? Can I ever stop you? <laughs> oh, 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 mad scientist laugh <laughs> there. Um, okay. Here, here's a question. Because I, I did mention those genetically engineered plants, which is what most people think are GMOs, but those genetically engineered plants, how many do you think are out there on the market? Uh, there's like 10 or 12 or something, right? <sighs> Dang, you're good. <laughs> I think I think it's like 11. Okay, okay. So, so name them. Uh, no, because you said only one question and we're running late. <laughs> Okay, it's soybean, canola, cotton, alfalfa, sugar, beets, summer squash, papaya, apples, potatoes, and two types of corn. You're just showing off, D. Yes. Um, anyway, D, let's take your advice from before. Uh, no end in sight, you know, that type of thing. We could, we literally could sit here and talk about this for the next, like, hours. Um, so let's go ahead and start wrapping this one up because I don't want to become a cyclic problem just like like the agricultural thing is so i am sure we can do probably at least one other episode on this on the impacts of humans on the earth if you say that's cool yeah i say it's cool and i think it's a great idea because it's easily at least one more episode if not two so to get that wrap-up ball rolling do you have any shout outs you'd like to make uh nope okay 
you like wrapping it up. <laughs> yep. I, I would like to give a shout out to all the folks that responded to my my Facebook question about the GMOs. Thank you for that. Um, remember, we, we do all of this, this podcast and everything we put on the Facebook page. We do it all for you. So thank you guys for staying engaged. So big shout out to you guys. Um, yeah. So you want to do the honors of wrapping up this episode? Don't I always do the honors? It's because you do such a great job. Either that or you're just being lazy. Good point. <laughs> anyway, uh, folks, go as, as always, we would like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. There's lots of other things you could do. Um, share our, our information, our podcast and our wildlife for you, Facebook page and website with everybody that you would like to share us with and people maybe that you don't even want to talk to because Again, you're ambassadors for wildlife. And I know that today's topic hasn't been about wildlife, but we are still part of the animal kingdom. And remember, when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge often means their existence. Night, folks. Hey, Steph, I bet you I can prove evolution wrong. We weren't supposed to bring evolution into this, but how? How could you prove evolution wrong? Well, think about it. How long do you think hummingbirds have been on the earth? Maybe 10,000, 100,000 years? Uh, I haven't put any research into it. Well, if they've been around that long, how come they don't know the words yet? Oh. <laughs>